six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman, filling in today for Carousel Baird. Last week at the start of the year, Governor Evers and state legislators started their new terms. But also last week was the deadline for candidates to submit their paperwork for the spring election, elections that never end. This spring, voters will pick the next Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. They'll also pick who they want to represent them locally, picking candidates for alder and for mayor. If it feels like the spring election is months away, well, you're half right. The spring nonpartisan election is on April 4th, but races that have more than two candidates will head to a primary first, and that primary is coming up on us next month on February 21st. In Madison, eight of the city's older districts have more than two candidates running. They'll be on that February primary ballot. And in a bit of a plot twist, so will the race for Madison mayor, when three candidates will appear on the ballot. This month, we're interviewing all of those candidates and, of course, inviting you to join us with your questions on air. Last week, incumbent Satya Rhodes-Conway joined us in the studio for an interview about her bid for a next term. And later this month, challenger Gloria Reyes will join us. And today... I'm sitting down with Scott Kerr, a longtime city employee who has thrown his hat in the ring as well. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a lifelong Madison resident who has worked for the city of Madison since 1980. So a little over 42 years in with the city of Madison in the parking utility, building inspection, and now traffic engineering. Um, I've always loved Madison. I've traveled away and, and visited enough other places to know that this is home. And I strive to make the city a better place from all of the positions I've had in the city. Now I'm nearing the end of my career, and what I'm seeing is disappointing me, so I'm hoping I can get into the mayor's office and change how we're doing things a little bit. So you've worked for, you have a lot of experience with the city. You've worked with the city for over four decades. Um, what is your position now? And you alluded to other positions you've had. Can you talk more about what you do at the city? Sure. I'm currently a traffic engineering civil tech two, which means I review permits for traffic lane closures, uh, construction sites, and then do the enforcement to make sure that they actually set the sites up correctly. That means I'm reviewing every site in the city of Madison that is obstructing traffic in any way, shape, or form. Pedestrian traffic, bike traffic, everything. And trying to make it a happy medium where the construction can be accomplished and we still have access to pedestrians, bikes, vehicles. Not always an easy situation, and uh, usually you wind up making half the people upset but if you've only upset half of them, you're doing the right. So that sounds like a really interesting job. How much time do you spend in the office versus time out in the field? I don't get to be out in the field as often as I'd like to because of the volume of permits. And when you're reviewing site plans and permits, it takes a little extra time to, to go through and catch all the minutiae. So you make sure you don't miss a bike lane, that there actually is an alternate pedestrian path available that's ADA compliant and that you make sure that if you've got an area that is utilized by visually impaired people that you come up with the appropriate type of barricades and warning systems so that we don't have situations where disabled people are somehow disenfranchised or put in jeopardy. I think our listeners might not know exactly how city engineering works exactly unless they, you know, have had to deal with that in some way or work in that industry. Um, can you tell us just what it's like to work in the city? How many other people work with you? How does that process work? So there are three permit reviewers in traffic engineering. There are also permit reviewers in every other department in the city. So the water utility has a permit reviewer. The uh, sewer system has a permit reviewer. 
engineering has a couple of permit reviewers, and engineering also has their own field inspectors because engineering has the permits for actually excavating in the right-of-way. Traffic engineering only issues the permits on our own that are for simply occupancy of the right-of-way. However, traffic engineering also weighs in on all the other permits. So as much as I'd like to spend more time out in the field and make sure everything is right, most of my field visits are generated by citizens who call in and and have a concern or a complaint about a specific site and that the traffic they feel is dangerous when they're out there. Sadly, most of the time, the complaints are right. Uh, Something didn't get set up correctly. The, The contractor expanded beyond their actual area of permit and we didn't get the right signage put in place. So first visit, I can be really friendly and help them just get it into alignment. Most of these sites go on for quite a while. A big site for a new construction building would be a two-year plus permit. And after a couple of months, people start to get lazy again. So the second time I get called out to a site, it gets expensive for the permit holder. Okay, so you're used to the minutia of of city government. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, let's turn to your the reason you're here, your run for mayor. Um, you're facing two other candidates, the incumbent, Sata Rhodes-Conway and Gloria Reyes. Um, can you tell us why you're running for mayor? I'm running for mayor because I've been a lifelong resident of the city, and I think we can do government better than it has been done. I want to make it so we're more responsive to the public, that we let the citizens have more input, And certainly before we spend a large amount of money on anything, we get a citizen poll or a a vote on it that lets us know that 51% of the city at least is in support of it instead of having the decisions made by even the elected officials. They don't always have the, the pulse of the people even in their own districts for the alders. So getting that system in place where we can have individuals weigh in when there's a decision that's going to affect them is one of my first and primary goals. Well, let's just take that one right now. So the city already has extensive ways that are ostensibly engaged the public, right? There are public hearings. Um, We actually have, just looking at other cities, a pretty good uh, transparent um, meeting system. We have City Channel where you can watch the meetings. We have still a blooming local news ecosystem, even though it's taken a hit. Um, There are ways for for people to be involved. I think one of the things that the city has struggled with, and there was actually a task force on this, is how to engage more residents into the city of Madison. And they proposed a number of solutions. Uh, One of them accidentally happened during the pandemic, which was virtual meetings. So I'm wondering what more are you proposing beyond what the city already does to engage constituents and residents of the city? An actual active polling system where we get the input from the people. Right now, yes, you can attend a meeting, you can attend the virtual meetings or hearings. But to let everybody speak at a council meeting means that we have council meetings that go on for six, eight, or ten hours. It isn't as important to get each person's story about it as it is to get the collective opinions and to see where that balance is. If it's a, an issue that you really are passionate about, you might be willing to sit there for eight hours to get your voice heard. I don't think that's necessary. I think it's easier for us to set up an actual online polling system where We could even run it during the meetings where there's just a poll set up. And if you, you know, weigh in one way or the other, we can count your vote and make that determination. So I want to pick up on another part of your answer. You mentioned that if if folks are split on an issue, if there's a 51 percent majority in favor of an issue with 49 percent detracting from an issue, what what do you do in that instance? Do you just move forward? Or do you think that there are things maybe unresolved there that need to be addressed? Because we live in a democracy, that's 
the way we're going to have to make decisions. If 51% of the people want a particular person in office, they win and they're in office. If 51% of the people on a street want to have speed bumps put in, we should put speed bumps in. But if only 10% of the people that live on that street want to have the speed bumps put in, I don't want to disenfranchise the 90% that live on that street by having them have to deal with something that they didn't want in the first place. Okay. So your other two challengers had a bit of a head start here. Um, Satya and Gloria, Satya Rhodes-Conway and Gloria Reyes both announced their candidacy in press conferences in November. Um, To be honest, the first I heard about your campaign was when I got the election paperwork from the city clerk's office. So can you tell me about, um, you know, how you plan to, to make up that publicity in the months to come? I'm a little handicapped in that I didn't decide to start running until mid-December. And I didn't do any kind of press release until I had all of my nomination papers completely filled out and I was sure that I could get on the ballot. I'm also handicapped because I am not accepting donations or asking for donations for my campaign. Everyone has said for years that they want to get the money out of politics. If we can't do it at the local level, We'll never be able to do it at any other level. So my candidacy is using public radio, public television. Anybody who wants to set up a a candidate forum, I'll be there if I can schedule it in any way, shape, or form. I will talk to the people in small groups, large groups, and I'll get my ideas out there as best I can in hopes that... uh, We do get a debate set up where all three of us can be on stage at the same time. But from what I've heard so far, there are no plans for that. Uh, The League of Women Voters is going to do a mail-out questionnaire and just take our responses on that. I will respond to all of those. And I'm working on, on getting all of that connected now. I don't have plans to spend any money, and that's the only other way you can get your word out there. It's 1220. You're listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Shally Pittman, and I'm speaking with Scott Kerr, one of three candidates for Madison mayor, in addition to incumbent Satya Rhodes-Conway and challenger Gloria Reyes. We are taking your calls this hour. Do you have a question for Scott Kerr? Call us at 608-256-2001. And our receptionist is out today, Scott. So when people call that number, 608-256-2001, there's a, let it ring a couple of times, just let it ring, and then you'll get a menu, and you're going to press nine. Do you think our list, I think our listeners can do that. 608-256-2001, let it ring, you'll get a menu, and press 9, and you'll be connected with our producer and get on the air. We already do have a caller who has been wor- uh, waiting for a couple of minutes. Thank you for waiting. Joanne, you're on the line. Yes, thanks, thanks for providing such a new and fresh voice for us in these matters and, and about the city as a whole. I'm thinking about two specific traffic, I don't want to bring you back down to traffic only, but uh, two specific traffic issues that we've all been concerned about in Madison. One is the fact that uh, the current administration, I I believe you're involved in it, seems to just want to reduce speeds as a way to solve city problems in, in, in traffic when that can actually backfire in some ways. As, as people choose streets that they shouldn't choose for their, their routes home and right, routes to work, and uh, traffic patterns are changed. Uh, again, uh, just this, the, the, the reduction of speed doesn't do uh, everything that you think it might. Also, the roundabouts, which are very confusing, especially for elderly individuals that, uh, you know, I've, that I've noticed through my book clubs and all of that. Uh, and I'm just wondering, uh, why are these two two ways of dealing with traffic issues just specialized as opposed to the, the, the many, many other ways in which redesign of the way that we drive can be, can be uh, uh, enforced? So thank you so much again for your um, efforts and providing a fresh voice for us. Thank you so much, Joanne. Scott Kerr, do you have an answer? 
The reason that we use reduced speed limits is it's been proven nationwide, worldwide, that the lower you put the speed limits out there, the fewer fatalities and serious accidents you have. The problem with that is some of the streets that we've reduced speed on were generating dangerous driving habits because people are attempting to pass the slower vehicles that are actually maintaining the new speed limit because they're used to that being their quick route around something else. So Joanne's right. Um, we need to look at that more closely before we just start randomly lowering the speed limit thinking that's going to solve every problem. Roundabouts are a similar issue where they're, they're great. They keep traffic flowing and they've been in use all over the world. We just need to catch up and learn about them. Um, we do have some that work quite well and we have others that have frequent accidents. I don't know if it's the the users in the area or if it's the designs of the roundabouts, but they're not going to go away. Roundabouts are an effective way to control traffic without having to put a stoplight in. Um, yeah, we can tweak them a little bit. And as Joanne mentioned, there are people that are concerned about them and a little confused by them. As a traffic engineering person, trying to set up traffic controls for work in a roundabout is a challenge nationwide, and only two states have come up with potential systems to use. Everything else is a wing it by the site itself. So if you can imagine that you have to dig a hole partway around a roundabout, figuring out how to get those cars through that roundabout becomes a very big challenge. We have designed ours so that our angle of entry into the roundabout is curved quite a bit. Minnesota has a system where they just shut down the roundabout and they use flaggers at every entrance to divert traffic the wrong way. That's something I'm terribly comfortable with and the way our angles are set up, really difficult to do. So roundabouts are, are a challenge for everyone. Okay, well, we are in the weeds of traffic engineering, and the role of a mayor is so many different departments, including streets and traffic. But your background has, of course, uh, you know, uh, sparked the callers. So we have another caller on the line with a question about traffic. Don, you're on the line. Hi. Now, I'm not a passionate proponent of building more more highways and streets with added lanes all the time. We know the fallacy of that policy. Look at the 24-lane uh, freeway in Houston that just opened. But in a culture which worships driving, the reality is more and more personal automobiles are being added to the traffic flow every day. This is just an inexorable reality. Now, in light of the addition of the new flex lane on the Beltline Highway, which arguably enhances rush hour traffic flow somewhat. Do more traffic calming, narrowing, and other well-meaning but problematic and restrictive measures so popular in Madison really make sense? Some of these projects merely seem to have the effect of constricting the throughway, at least in a culture where everyone drives, quote-unquote, and everyone includes me nowadays, unfortunately. <laughs> So on the Beltline, a flex lane and, and increasing traffic flow makes sense. But on surface streets, we have to take into consideration bicyclists and pedestrians as well. And a lot of those measures that constrict you and slow you down while you're in the vehicle are put there so that we have safety for bikes, pedestrians, and the other drivers that are not willing to go as fast or, or through as you are. Um we shouldn't install those on thoroughfares. Now, thoroughfares, we've got to come up with other systems to protect bikes and pedestrians. And some of the, the new bike lanes we're putting in where we've got the parking lane against traffic are great systems for that. But you're right. If it is a major thoroughfare that is used for commuting, we should not be putting any kind of restrictions in your travel lane. Well, thank you for responding so thoroughly to our callers' questions about traffic. But, Scott Kerr, I want to return to your run for mayor, which encompasses so uh, so many different facets of the city. In fact, all of the city, really. Um, so 
I'm wondering if we can talk just a little bit more about your your filing to run. Um, I was looking at your campaign filing statement, and uh, you wrote that you are representing the Common Sense Solutions and Fiscal Responsibility Party. Is that a political party, or or is that just telling us a little bit more about your position and your run for mayor? It's a little more about my position and my run for mayor. There's no political party for that. Okay. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about why you're running and about your platform? Throughout my career with the city, I've found ways to save money and, and to make the city better. Okay. Um, well, let's take that. What are some of those ways? So for me personally, um, I found a, a designed a gate system that's still in use in the parking utility for a location that the engineers said we could never put a gate there. We had to use chains. And employees were getting injured moving the chains in and out. So that was cheaper? Cheaper and uh, instead of wearing out chains and having employees have to drag chains into place, we now have a gate that just swings into position, has been functioning for at least three decades um, without needing repair. The other thing I did is I discovered that we paid the Supreme Court for our citations. And I started trying to get just the city's court information printed on our citations so that we didn't, each officer didn't have to manually write it in. I got a lot of pushback and was told from the Supreme Court that we could not do that. So after a little research, I discovered that we could get our citations from any printer. I contacted the printer that was actually producing them for the Supreme Court discovered that, yeah, we could get that uh, information added in and it wouldn't cost any more. And oh, if we didn't want them all stapled together with the heavy cardboard on it, he could lower the fees. So we figured out that it would be about a $4,000 a year savings just on the citations that the police department used. Okay. Well, I interrupted you. you. You got to your first point of your platform and I interrupted. So what's the rest of your platform? So... Mainly, it's, it's getting the public in view, input on all of our decisions so that we don't come up with expensive ideas that nobody wants. Mm-hmm. The other thing is I want the city employees. I know we've got a bunch of really talented people working for the city that probably can come up with cost savings for us in every department. I want them to have a way to get that to the mayor's office and to get those ideas implemented without restrictions on it. Well, I'm curious what you mean by that and if you can be more specific, because one, a big thing that a mayor does is guide the budget process, right? So, um, you know, we go through this months long uh, that starts, you know, in, gosh, spring, where departments made up of city staff submit budget proposals. It goes to Alders, it goes to the mayor, um, and then they kind of duke it out in November, and then suddenly we have a budget to fund the city. But that does go through many layers of eyes um, and eyeballs looking at it. So what would you do differently? Instead of just meeting with the department heads and getting their input for this, I'd want to reach out to the rank-and-file employees and find out if there are cost-cutting measures that we can put in that would make the budget requests lower without changing what we're going to wind up with in the end. One of the the, the measures I want to implement as soon as possible would be to stop sending two police officers to deliver people in mental health crisis all the way up to Winnebago. By pulling two officers off the street to do that transport, we're lowering our amount of officers on the street at any given time. We're spending money in the salaries of the police officers for them to be a transport team and not do their job. The state law was changed a couple of years ago. That transport, after the, the police deliver the, the person to a local hospital and there's someone there that does the assessment on them, deems that the person needs to be put in for a psychological evaluation. That transport can be done by uh, private citizens or non-sworn employees anyway, uh, ambulance services. Uh, We could set up something similar to the CARES team that would do a transport. Putting the person that's in crisis in a more comfortable vehicle with somebody with them that could better assist them if their condition deteriorates instead of 
in the back of a squad car with two uniform officers to transport them, where it's not a terribly comfortable position. So if you're already in crisis, that's not going to make you any better on your transport. I want to make this, A, more cost-effective. If we're not using sworn officers, we can do it at a lower rate. And B, more safe for the person that's being transported. Okay, that seems specific, but actionable. Um, and I, to be honest, I don't know too much about that specific program, uh, but I do want to talk about public safety in a second. Um, we have the phone lines ringing out in the lobby. I can hear them. So I want to get to some more callers, though. The, again, the role of a mayor is to do so many, uh, so many things across the city. Uh, Bob is on the line and has a question about a pressing problem, I think, in Madison, which is affordable housing. Bob, you're on the line. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm a 35-year member of city, uh, resident city of Madison, um, and uh, I, you know, there's been uh, a lot of push to create more housing based on old uh, UW population uh, lab estimates of city growth, but that basically shows we already should be in a decline period. Um, but while the current mayor and city council talk a lot about affordable housing, it seems like all that's being okayed by plan commission and common council is more high-end apartment buildings that are mostly one-bedroom one studio apartments, um, and they're not affordable. Uh, it seems like most uh, the role is to mostly rubber stamp uh, any developer's plans with a little tweaking of the looks around the edges, not looking to how they fit into current residential communities and also um, uh, whether they move towards a goal of affordable housing. Uh, the city has an opportunity with annexing the uh, town of Madison area around the uh, uh, Coliseum there to really actually do something with affordable housing to, for ownership uh, units in other areas. Even condo ownership is ownership, not uh, just rental units uh, that'll probably turn into urban blight in 15, 20 years. Uh, is I'm just curious to hear views on affordable housing and particularly if going the route of just building more apartments is a way that you see as a good use of Madison's facilities. Well, Bob, that's a, a challenging subject. Um, Cost-effective housing is difficult all over the nation, and I'm not terribly comfortable with the city of Madison or any government agency telling a private developer what they have to do beyond what our zoning requirements are. So the developer knows coming in that uh, X number of units are going to have to be at uh, median rent or below. Other than that, I don't know what we can do without infringing on private property rights. I don't want to limit what someone else wants to spend their money on but at the same time, I don't want to put city money or taxpayer money in any way, shape, or form into developments unless we're getting the low-cost housing that we can help improve the city with. So any developer that comes to me with a plan and wants city money or even TIF money used for it would have to provide a substantial amount of housing that would be below market rate. So um, our caller, Bob, I think, uh, raised a good question. Affordable housing is one of, uh, you know, the real challenges that Madison is struggling with. Madison ex is expected to grow in the next couple of decades by a lot. Um, and there, you know, over the past couple of years, there have been some initiatives to um, increase kind of housing density and uh, find other ways, alternative ways, um, like ADUs, affordable dwelling units, and... Um, I'm kind of blanking on other things now, but there have been proposals. Are there other specific fixes to uh, that that kind of housing difficulty finding for actually affordable housing outside of being a buzzword um, that you would propose? I would expect with the amount of rental units we've got in the city, at some point we're going to have an increase on the lower cost ones. 
we can't continue to have enough renters to fill up these $3,000 a month units. But the developers keep building the newest, shiniest thing they can, and they're fully rented before they're done. So until we get to the point where all the people that want to spend the money have got the units that they are, can afford and want to get into, I don't know that we're going to get a developer that wants to be, spend the money and do a development less than that unless we put city money into it. And there are opportunities to do that. There's the development out at Hartmeyer next to Oscar Myers that's going forward that should fill in some of that. But I also don't want to get to the point where we're only putting low-income housing in certain neighborhoods. We have to find a way to disperse that around the entire city because there's not just people having financial problems on the south side or the east side or the north side. They're everywhere. They're downtown. They're west side. We have to have a, a system in place to address that everywhere. And I don't have a firm plan for that yet, but I'm sure open to anybody's ideas. It's 1238. You're listening to A Public Affair. We're speaking with Scott Kerr, one of three candidates for Madison mayor. And as a reminder, we are taking your calls this hour. If you have a question question for Scott Kerr, call us at 608-256-2001. As a reminder, the phone's going to ring. Just let it ring. You'll go to voice menu, and then you press extension 9. We do have callers on the line, so I want to get to them. I want to talk more about your platform, but we got to be responsive to the caller, Scott. So, I understand. Susan, you're on the line. Hello. How do I contact Scott to invite him to a public forum, hopefully with the other candidates? The easiest way to get a hold of me right now is email. That's s.kerr, the number four, mayor at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, which is skerr, the number four, mayor.com, and that will get you into a system where you can contact me through the website. Okay. Thank you, Susan, for that question. Diane uh, also has a question about mental health transit that we had talked a little bit about before. Diane, you're on the air. Good afternoon to both of you. Thank you very much for taking my call. I was not clear how you propose to do this transport of someone in a mental health crisis. And the first thing that I heard that set my, my mind a whirl was having only one police officer go with the client. I am a caseworker from Chicago. And so I have some firsthand knowledge of what it's like to have this kind of person in this kind of situation. And so, and I don't want to misinterpret what you're saying, but to have, were you proposing one officer go with one client for the purposes of saving some money? No. Or? What I'm actually proposing is that after the initial contact with law enforcement and the person is transported to one of our hospitals where they get evaluated, and it's determined that that person should now be taken to the state facility, that they're either not willing to self-admit to that, that hospital or the hospital does not have room for them, and then we have to transport them up to Winnebago County rather than, or Winnebago's mental health system. Anyway, can't say that. Mental health system? Mental health system. Instead of having an officer with them to do that transport, use a driver and a mental health professional. Not have them alone with one person, but put them in a vehicle that's more comfortable than a squad car's back seat. And instead of having two uniformed officers ride with them, have a transport team that includes a mental health professional. Scott, this um, proposal of yours came up in a question earlier this hour um, when we were talking about fiscal responsibility. How much money ballpark do you think that this would save the city? I don't know. Uh, it's more focused on saving law enforcement time and keeping cops on the street. We're still going to have to spend money to have a transport done, but we won't be idling two police officers while we're doing it. And I'm hoping that the staffing levels of that 
and the cost for those staff would be reasonable. Ultimately, we could you know make it an extension of the CARES team, but I don't want to put take the CARES team off the street either. They're an important asset right now that we're just expanding. Yeah, and if for listeners who aren't aware, that's the um, community. Uh, alternative response program that kind of launched in September 2021 and has kind of steadily grown since then um, that's meant to respond to nonviolent behavioral kind of mental health calls. Um, Okay, we have more callers, so I want to get to them. Tony is on the line with a question about the entertainment district. Tony, you are on the air. Thank you very much. Well, I did want to talk about the entertainment district. I just want to make a real quick point about the transport of these people to Winnebago. I don't know if you knew, but uh, it was during the Walker administration um, that that he made police officers go all the way to Winnebago. They used to be able to just go to Mendota Mental Health and take these clients there. It almost seems like it was punishment for the police officers who were uh, standing up for uh, union rights at the Capitol. So that that's something you should know about. Um, I did want to talk about the entertainment district and what you thought about the concept of the Mad- city of Madison setting up an entertainment district. But I changed my mind. I want to ask about the reorganization of city government. A couple of years ago, there was a, a committee that spent a couple of years, and their uh, recommendations were to cut the uh, city council in half mm. almost. And we had too many. Um, what is your what are your thoughts on that reorganization of city government? So Tony is asking about the task force on the structure of government, also known as TFOGS. Tony, I've looked at that and I struggle with citizen access to their older person and their representative versus having a council that is compact enough to actually maybe make a decision. Um it's it's rough. Uh, I do think that we've expanded beyond the need. Uh, with 20 different aldermanic districts, uh, some of them are very small. Those alders don't have much contact with their constituents as it is. But others have an immense amount of, of contact and are active constantly. Redrawing the lines makes it more confusing because now people who thought they were in one district are now redrawn into a different district. In fact, we've got alders running in new districts because their own residents move them out of, or the the redrawing of the line, their own residents move them into a new district. But shrinking the size of government sounds like a great idea. On one front, save it, uh, the money on it, and make it more streamlined and efficient. On the other hand, I really want to make sure that every neighborhood has access to their representation. If we can get uh, an online polling system or an electronic system for them to communicate on every issue, I think you're right. I think we can decrease the size of the council by half. How much do you think Alder should be paid? It's a tough call. It's a part-time job, although... Most, currently. Yeah, currently. Most of our government is supposedly a part-time job. So... What do you mean by that? Even most our, of our government. Even our legislature was originally set up just to be a part-time job. Yeah, and uh, now, uh, you know, you get paid $55,000 a year. Minimum, yes. Right. And then you get your per diems and everything on top of that. So I struggle with how much we should compensate alders based on what they do. We have some alders that are out there constantly and involved in every decision. We have other alders that uh, are there when they're getting elected and then amazingly disappear. So if you're the alder that's that's working, putting in the time and it is active at everything, every event, anything that comes up, you show up for coffee with a cop, you show up with every neighborhood meeting, Yeah, you should be compensated, but we also can't make that a requirement for the next person that gets your position. They knew when they were elected that the the pay was not great. If we do come up with a system where we're going to pay them more, I'd like that to kick in for the next person elected into that position. All right. I'm speaking with Scott Kerr. We do have more callers on the line, so I do want to get to them. Terry is on the line. Terry, go ahead. 
Hey. Uh, I'm curious. I keep hearing the city leadership talking about taking care of the homeless, taking care of the low-income people in the city. Yeah, we have a 6% property tax hike, a wheel tax, a trash fee. How are seniors who spent their whole life working to buy their homes supposed to be able to stay in those homes with these increases? Then with this, the bus routes, with the BRT coming, the bus routes have changed. So many people, seniors don't even have access to the city anymore because they have to walk so much farther to get to the bus. And the working poor now have to buy another car, which, of course, is wheel tax, and then drive into work. If you work at working poor at the university, that's fifteen hundred dollars a year. The, the uh, uh, or with parking fees and the other costs of a car. So again, the low low income person is being hurt. And then they keep looking at what they plan to do on State Street. Take care to take out the Lake Street ramp. Put in a sixteen story building. The gentrification of this, the, the downtown is terrible. How many people are going to go down there with this kind of thing going on? There's no guarantee there'll be parking there, even if there is. How can, when is he in, uh, the city going to understand there's people here who worked all their lives and now you want to push them out of their homes? Okay, thank you, Terry, for that question. Scott Kerr, your response. I understand that people have worked all their lives here and that the costs are a problem because I'm one of those people. How to, to accomplish that so that we're not taxing people out of their homes and still providing everything that we need to is a challenge. And the easiest solution is to get more of the money back from the state. But as an earlier caller pointed out, um, Madison was penalized for going against Walker. We we have not recovered any of that shared revenue and closing Mendota State Hospital for emergency evaluations and detentions has hurt our, our city even more. The, the solution is going to be getting the, the shared revenue back from the state so that we get our equal share for what we put in and that will help and should definitely slow down our tax rate. So, Scott, I can hear the phone ringing again, and uh, we're generating a lot of calls this hour here on A Public Affair. We have about 10 minutes left in the show. Our last caller, Terry, brought up a subject that I did want to ask you more about, which is transit. In uh, not traffic, but transit. Um, in the summer, we're slated to launch bus rapid transit, um, which is, is designed to bring um, you know people from the east and west sides uh, much more quickly to the other side of the city. Um, how do you feel about bus rapid transit? It's a challenge for me because part of what bus rapid transit is taking out to create the rapid transit lanes are measures that we put in place for pedestrian safety. So, Can you explain more <laughs> what that means? Currently, if you're on East Washington Avenue and you're at a crosswalk, the curb line extends out into the parking lane so that you're above the curb when you're trying to cross the street until you absolutely have to step into a travel lane. In order to put the bus rapid transit lane in, all of those measures are coming out. So you will now have at minimum another 16 feet to cross every time you try to cross East Wash where you're on the same level as vehicles. We had the, the Vision Zero initiative that we were trying to put in more pedestrian safety and it seems that bus rapid transit superseded that now and we're removing even infrastructure we put in place for it. Okay, but uh, bus rapid transit, like the general idea is to can better connect the city more quickly? Are you, uh, at, at the cost of some route changes and things like that, um, are you generally opposed to bus rapid transit or are you for it? I'm generally for it. Okay, but, but that detail. That detail is one okay. of the things that hurt me. And the other thing is the bus system is currently subsidized and it will always be subsidized. So any alterations we make to the bus system should be to increase ridership and then decrease the subsidy amount that we have to put into it. So are you asking folks to pay more to take the bus? Well, if that's what it takes to get bus rapid transit, that may be what we have to do. I don't want to saddle the entire city with an increased charge and surcharge for the bus system 
especially if it doesn't increase ridership. If BRT works and we increase ridership, the fees should, should be able to stay the same and still decrease the subsidies. I want it looked at more balanced and not just, this is shiny, this fits on a bumper sticker really well, let's do this new thing. Okay. We have about eight minutes left on the show here on A Public Affair, and we have at least one more caller. Um, Anne is on the line. Anne, can you um, briefly describe your question? Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, here's my question. Listening this morning to um, the conversation, um, I live on a street on the near east side of Madison off of Atwood Avenue, the first block or two off of Atwood Avenue. And there's, I would say, a confluence of two of the issues that you've been talking about, housing and traffic. This is a neighborhood street with, with a lot of kids on it, school-age kids that live on this street. We have tried to get a study of traffic on our street twice. They said we didn't meet the criteria for, you know, calming measures. Well, now there's a, there's a church that's going to be demolished, and um, there's a proposal for uh, housing to be built there that would probably be three or four stories, apartments of some kind. And in that plan is a plan to accommodate 50 more cars on this street, this near east side. You know how narrow these streets are with parking on both sides with a lot of kids. How in the world do we get attention paid to our street to get calming measures? Because it is uh, trucks, I mean, like FedEx, you know, Amazon, regular traffic, it's kind of a throughway between Atwood and, say, getting over to East Wash. Got it, Anne. Thank you so much. Scott Curry, your response very quickly to Anne's question. That's difficult. If there's a new development that's been approved, the alder should have been able to put in a traffic study as part of that. If that was not done and the development has already been approved, Sadly, we'll have to wait until after the traffic volumes increase before it meets the criteria to spend the time and money on a study. But uh, start with your alder, reach out to your alder and ask for that. And if you do not get a decent response from your alder, reach out to the mayor's office, no matter who's in there, and explain the situation. We should be able to at least get a static traffic count system set up out there so that we can know accurately what the volume is on your street. Scott Kerr, we have just a couple minutes left, and there's so much more I wanted to get to in this hour, and our callers have been um, talkative today, so I appreciate that. Thank you, folks, for calling in. Uh, but um, very briefly, I'm wondering if you can respond in like 15 or 20 seconds just on general thoughts uh, across other topic areas. So um, starting uh, this year, F-35s are going to come to Madison. How do you feel about F-35s? The issues with it, whatever the Air Force wants to put in, Truax is an active federal mm -hmm. military base. Mm -hmm. The city of Madison can uh, give them our Can't opinion. Can't do much. Yeah, we can give yeah. them our opinions, but that's about it. F-35s, if they become more of an issue, the federal government's going to have to take care of whatever sound mediation comes up. And Okay. Okay. All right. Moving on to environmental challenges. Um, what are do you have any proposals for dealing with things like Well 19, which is shut down due to PFAS contamination? There's a lot of issues on that that, that I'd like to look into, but I don't have a, a firm answer for Well 19. Um, one of the things I'd like to do is to change what we use for asphalt here. Around the world, we're reusing recycled plastics in asphalt. And as far as I've been able to research, PFAS are not coming up an increased problem where we're doing that, but we're eliminating more of them from the environment. Okay. And um, I think we already talked about community engagement, which is excellent. Um, one thing that I've seen a lot of mayors uh, or even alders bring up um, is the relationship between Madison and the state legislature. The city is sometimes very limited, as we've kind of alluded this hour, in what it can do in certain situations, um, you know, in discussions about how to generate revenue on infrastructure or things even like the Police and Fire Commission. I'm wondering if you can generally just talk 
about how you would manage these very broad decisions, policy decisions, while staying, you know, legal with the what the state legislature has said. It's definitely a David and Goliath situation. <laughs> um, the voters can help out by electing a Supreme Court justice who will help get rid of the gerrymandered uh, districts that we've got in the state right now. If we get back to a point where we have fair and balanced maps and actual representation for the people, I think the state funding will be coming back down to the municipalities. Okay, Scott. Um, Scott Kerr, I have one fun question for you, which is outside of work or politics, what's one hobby or one thing that you do in your free time? Oh, um, I have an e-bike. I like biking around Mm -hmm. the city of Madison. Uh, My wife is an avid gardener, which means I have developed a little bit of a garden of my own. I have native cactuses. Uh, I currently have seven different cactuses in a cactus garden, and they actually do really well. Um, I'm also a thrifter. Uh, Translation, I'm cheap. So I shop thrift stores, antiques, centers. Uh, That's one of the things when we travel. The two things I'll look for are museums and thrift stores. Scott Kurt, one final question. Were you on the fence about whether to run for Madison mayor? I never intended to run for mayor until I got frustrated with what I was seeing going on. And that's why I didn't jump in early. And then the fact that I really want to take money out of politics is the reason I am not accepting any donations, asking for any support from anybody other than helping me get the word out and voting for me. Scott Kerr, I want to thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. My pleasure. Scott Kerr is one of the three candidates running for Madison mayor. The race is headed to a primary on February 21st, and the top two finishers there will move to a spring election on April 4th. Gloria Reyes will join us later this month, and if you missed our interview with Satya Rhodes-Conway, the incumbent, you can find that online. WORT will have much more elections coverage in the week ahead. Please stay tuned to our website at wortfm.org for our election guide, which will be live soon. You can also find this interview there, and we will also link to the ways to contact you, Scott. You've been listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman. I want to thank all of our callers this hour. Thanks also to producer Jade Isiri Ramos and engineer Megan Burge. Burge? and Carousel Baird for always hosting this show. Letters in Politics is up next. You're listening to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Have a good afternoon, everyone. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported.